Arir Kishian on court high lorukta is Iriakasa Aristoit canon in Iliokasaguini Oka Kahore. Tris Lim Levin court diplomacas and Irkta Janta Aka can velith in our Janga Gukish. Your Excellency, Dean of the Diplomatic Corps. Secretaries General, Excellencies, Minister of State, Canon, distinguished guests all, may I say what it is a great pleasure to welcome you and your families again to Oris and Uktron. I have already said I do want to congratulate all those members of the Diplomatic Corps and through you, Dean, to all of them for the wonderful efforts they are making in accommodating our native language, Irish. Gunamila Margot, I congratulate yourself and all of those. I think that this is a very important year, as you have said. And I want to wish each and every one of you, and through you, your and your heads of state, wish all of the citizens, Neseronica, father, of your countries, what I wish for the people of Ireland. That is a year of peace, reflection, and renewed commitment to cooperation as we face together all of the challenges that we share, as we seek to make the necessary renewals that are necessary and indeed the new beginnings that we must make, not only in the coming year, but that are called for in the decades ahead. So may I begin then by conveying my thanks to Your Excellency, Most Reverend and Most Archbishop Ocolo, as Dean of the Diplomatic Corps, for your very kind wishes and your very, very kind words and good wishes for the coming year. During, may I say to you, Dean, that during this year, I, as Uktron Heron, and all Irish people will be looking forward to welcoming Pope Francis. Uh, this past year was yet another year in his pontificate in which he offered words of inspiration, hope, and indeed some very necessary reminders of what are our shared obligations, not only to humanity, but to biodiversity on our planet, which is a very significant development in encyclical writing. Last Thursday, I had the opportunity to meet the contributors to a, vol- to a, to a volume entitled Laudato Si, an Irish response, which was a collection of essays drawing from a distinguished number of Irish theologians, academics and environmentalists on that marvellous second encyclical of Pope Francis, which was subtitled, after all, On Care for Our Common Home. Their visit and their book, which was presented, of course, to His Holiness by one of my former prede- one of my predecessors, former President Mary Robinson, on the occasion of the visit to him in Rome by the elders, and it was a reminder <coughs> that His Excellency, you are the representative of a papacy that has made such a vital contribution to the dialogue we urgently need on the immense threats to our shared but increasingly vulnerable planet. Threats which constitute nothing less than an ecological crisis. Pope Francis has reminded us that pollution, climate change, the loss of biodiversity, the growing scarcity of fresh water and global social inequalities, they are connected as part of a complex system which we must come to understand not only in each of its parts but in its interconnections. 
in Laudato see a case is made for such an integrated vision that will deliver what is called a new and universal solidarity, a vision that combines issues of human dignity, work, environment, the rights of migrants and excluded communities, global poverty, sustainable development, the renewed threat of war, and how we must replace fear with hope. They are all dealt with in what is a groundbreaking moral statement, not only for the Vatican, but for the global discourse, I believe. How often, I must ask, will we need to have demonstrated to us the human catastrophe that is war? Why is it necessary, generation after generation, to devote the richness and promise of nature and human intelligence to preparations for war, and devote it to become the means of war? This year, on the 11th of November 2018, we shall, in countries across the world, commemorate the conclusion of the catastrophic events that began the 20th century in Europe, which we now call the First World War. We will recall not only all of the dead, but the lost potential of those millions who lost their lives or who were injured during that conflict, and the countless others who suffered mental anguish as a result of bearing a witness to living with the legacy of the horrors of war. That war did not end all of the wars of that century in Europe or the world. Nor has it ended the invocation of fear as foreign policy, the threat of might, of nuclear capacity that exists to this day. The papacy of the period of that First World War issued an encyclical too, at Beatissima Apostolorum, just two months after the conflict had begun, in which the war was described as the suicide of civilised Europe. We may now, even more so today, question as to how that word civilised came to be used, the connotations it has carried through the generations and across cultures and belief systems and the purpose to which it was put, the hubris of an alleged single source of civilisation. The collision of the empires of Europe visited a terrible devastation upon the peoples whom they sought to keep subject. Peoples whose subjugation, like the First World War, reflected the application of ideas which were anything but enlightened in a philosophical sense, indeed reflected the perversion of new science and technology towards what would become and continue to be its very worst ends. The First World War, above all, represents the failed consequences of a particular model of diplomacy. The diplomacy of the strong, seeking to achieve, defend or extend hegemony. It was one that embraced cynicism, that asserted a narrow hegemonic theory of interests over idealism and the projection of national power above the recognition and rule of international law itself. The balance of power, established at the Congress of Vienna in 1815, facilitated repression at home through the suppression of the liberal nationalisms that were arising within the dynastic empires and abroad, experienced through the creation of vast, threatening imperial systems.
That international system was served by a diplomacy based on the prosecution of a theory of balanced but competing forces that existed within its own remorseless logic that is summed up by the ancient motto, if you want peace, prepare for war. That brutal logic of deterrence has left us a legacy that defines security as management and threat of fear, rather than the terms of eliminating global poverty, enabling sustainable development, or preventing loss of life. Such a view has locked up so much of our natural and human resources in a militaristic logic of endless preparation based on fear of the other, distortion of the distortion of the culture and motives of the other. In 2018, as part of our decade of centenaries, where we will remember the end of the First World War and will honour the Irish who fought and died in it, we will also remember and commemorate the general election here in Ireland of December 1918, influenced as it was by widespread rejection of conscription. That election was a key point in Irish history because it provided the democratic mandate for the first Dáil. That election also had a further significance. <laughs> Almost hard to say it. It was the first election in which women in Britain and Ireland were enabled to vote. A limited number of women. And it was the point at which women's suffrage, for which so many had campaigned and suffered imprisonment, was achieved to a degree. In 2018, we will be honouring here at Orson throughout Ireland the suffragette movement. And while 1918 was therefore a new beginning in that sense for us here in Ireland, it represented in a wider European context, it represented the failure. I think we must remember it as the tragic failure too of diplomacy. The possibility then of a new start in international relations and con national self-determination, which had been embodied, for example, in Wilson's 14 points, was squandered in the peace settlements, such as that of Versailles, whose provisions many saw as simply entrenching those very inequalities between nations which had been one of the causes of the war. More malign forces of nationalism and extremism in turn then could feed upon these diplomatic failures as fuel for a myth of betrayal and victimisation. Once again, a hundred years later, in this year 2018, we see that the value of diplomacy is being called into question. People point to the daunting global challenges we face. They are there climate change, the conflicts in Syria and Yemen, the devastating humanitarian crisis in Rakhine State and Myanmar. And we have to ask, has diplomacy failed again? In the absence of diplomatic solutions, people more generally are being invited by the bellicose to turn to use siren voices proposing simplistic answers, the use of force or crude exclusionary measures against those defined as other than us. And history should remind us of what diplomatic failure can mean and visit on us. The consequences are not abstract. We know that at its worst, it can result in violent conflict and the destruction of countless human lives and, of course, human potential. In a recent speech, 
the Distinguished UN Diplomat and High Commissioner for Human Rights, Zaid Rad Al Hussein, who I had the honour of having visiting Arsaluk throne during this past year, did not mince his words. He said, We now find ourselves in a political earthquake zone, where the basic global consensus embodied in key regional and international institutions is being eroded. It is not sufficient, however, to simply note that the absence of effective diplomacy can have and will have dangerous consequences. All of us, I think, as diplomats, in particular your vocation, is to devise a positive vision which can capture and sustain the support of public opinion. And you must claim the space for and seek to vindicate diplomacy. You must show how diplomacy can help solve the problems which face the world and how negotiation and compromise ultimately offers a better way forward than conflict and polarization. Is the very basis of our multilateralism not under threat? Since the creation of the United Nations and its associated institutions at the end of the Second World War, the focus has been so often and correctly and promisingly on rights-based diplomacy and the elaboration of a network of multilateral institutions. And these have created very important norms and entrenched universal values, for example, such as are enumerated in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Universalism is a concept it's a category that should limit the imposition of the excessive influence of the strong as a single source of values. We cannot, of course, any of us, can, we should not and must not concede ground on what we have won for basic human rights and dignity. But some in the global south, however, argue that the invocation of this normative framework sometimes seeks to draw almost exclusively from Western post-enlightenment thinking, and that this in turn leads to the exclusion of other sources of ethical value, of value systems, other sources and networks of knowledge. For example, the rich learning, culture and jurisprudence of the Islamic world is often ignored in a Western discourse which reduces it, which reduces centuries of sophisticated legal, religious and academic thought to a one-dimensional debate about extremism versus moderation. This is not merely lazy. It is not merely inadequate scholarship. It is dangerous talk, in my view. I believe we should seek to engage in a dialogue with other cultures based around a fundamental respect for a different ways of seeing and draw for a, a new future on the deep knowledge which many cultures have through their specific and unique understanding of their world. An openness to different sources of knowledge, including, perhaps in particular, a desire to learn from indigenous cultures and many faiths can only benefit our mutual understanding. And while we may differ in the conclusions we reach about how, about how we engage with the world, it is important that through a process of dialogue and debate, we demonstrate together a sincere respect for the way, the, for the way other cultures and peoples reach different conclusions regarding politics and diplomacy. And I know and I believe that you as diplomats, with all of your skills of intercultural exchange, will be at the vanguard of those efforts to build mutual knowledge and understanding. But at the same time, we must also be concerned 
that anti-intellectualism is feeding a narrative in which a distorting rhetorical version of populism, for example, offers deceptively simple answers to complex issues. Words matter. They are the essence of diplomacy. They are your tools, because words both define and shape solutions. They can liberate and open up possibilities, but they can also shut down debate and dialogue. We have seen how the use of words, especially on social media, can make the work of diplomats much more difficult by narrowly defining the parameters in which problems can be considered and thereby closing off possibilities. Dear friends, the challenges which we all faced then in 2018 are some of the most daunting since the end of the Cold War. Back then there was optimism, maybe hubris, that somehow we had reached an historical apotheosis. Professor Fukuyama went so far as to argue, rather arrogantly, that we had reached the end of history itself. That is, the end point of mankind's ideological evolution, and that the universalization of Western liberal democracy and its particular serving form of economic theory would be the final form of human government. And that scholarship had consequences in quenching and stifling important debate. It turned out not to be so. History has a way of reasserting itself. Your task as diplomats, then, is to face that reality squarely and to imagine a new way of dealing with global problems while remaining true to the values which must shape diplomacy, the patient work of building friendships between people and of constructing peaceful collective solutions to what are our shared problems. The global problems which face us are manifold and interlinked and require global understanding and cooperation. The threat to all our futures that is posed by climate change, the ongoing conflicts I've mentioned, those conflicts in the areas that we describe as the Middle East, those especially in Syria and Yemen, the importance of a just resolution of the Palestinian question, rooted in international law and a two-state solution, the ongoing challenge of conflict and poverty in Africa, which will be our youngest, most crowded planet before the middle of this century. The desperate humanitarian plight of the Rohingya people in Myanmar, the importance and the need for a renewed multilateral effort to underpin the joint comprehensive plan of action for Iran, and a peaceful resolution to the issue of nuclear proliferation in the TPRK. So let us all consider then the many difficult journeys too, separate from these major issues, being undertaken by many of our fellow citizens with whom we share this vulnerable planet. Those many millions of women, children and men around the world who suffer from the lack of a home or secure shelter. This last year we learned that 20 people a minute are forced to leave their homes by wars, conflict, persecution or natural disasters. We have a responsibility, all of us citizens, heads of state and diplomats, to help the many millions of refugees and displaced persons find their rightful place in a peaceful and secure society. But underlining all of these issues is the fundamental question of how we ensure the representation and dignity of all people, how to preserve and protect their fundamental human rights and help them build a better and more secure future for themselves and their children. 
How do we begin to resolve all of this, these daunting challenges? And what are the tools which you as diplomats are using in your work? Diplomacy has been defined as one of the most important institutions of our societies. Uh, um, defined as one of the most important institutions of our society of states. That was the phrase used. Diplomacy enables states to secure the objectives of their foreign policies through negotiation, dialogue and debate without resort to force. At its best, diplomacy should seek to balance the pursuit of national interests grounded in an inclusive public debate with an ethical awareness of our shared humanity on a fragile planet. The foundation of a diplomat's work is laid in the foreign policy of their state. It is an essential part of the identity of any country. It reflects how a state views the world and how it interacts with other states in all their complexity and history and diversity. I believe that a state's foreign policy must be firmly rooted, firstly in the values that inform the public space. Thank you for your reference to my citizenship initiative. Secondly, I believe openness and accountability are essential characteristics of a good foreign policy. I recall in my other life as a parlamentarian, more than 30, far back as 1988, advocating an Oireachtas Committee for an Oireachtas Committee on Foreign Affairs. I did so to encourage public debate, to ensure accountability for what is being said and done around the world in the name of Irish citizens. This committee and the other parliamentary committees on European Affairs and the Good Friday Agreement now provide invaluable scrutiny and democratic oversight of Irish foreign policy. It was Lord Palmerston who had argued that states have no permanent friends or enemies, only eternal interests, as he put it, which they have a duty to follow. Now, while his assertion of a realism in foreign policy terms reflect a 19th century imperialist mindset, the concept continues to have surprising longevity in the discourse of some contemporary international relations, while its consequences are ignored. Those principles in their day led to disastrous human consequences, and reinvoking them brings horrific contemporary risks that are neglected as the principles of what led to disastrous human consequences are reinvoked. In Ireland's case, we believe our foreign policy must go beyond any narrow realist assertion of national interests as asserted so bluntly and with such appalling consequences as Palmerston. A broad vision of Ireland's place in the world has been at the heart of our foreign policy since before the foundation of our state itself. And one of the opening acts of the first Dole in 1919 was to issue what it called in three languages it was issued, a message to the free nations of the world, which unambiguously stated that Ireland believes in freedom and justice as the fundamental principles of international law, because she believes in a frank cooperation between the peoples for equal rights against the vested privileges of ancient tyrannies, because the permanent peace of Europe can never be secured by perpetuating military dominion for the profit of empire, but only by establishing the control of government in every land upon the basis of the free will of a free people. 
Those fundamental principles of justice, belief in the rule of international law, equality between nations and respect for the democratic rights of people everywhere, continue to form the bedrock of Irish foreign policy. For Ireland, because of our history, and because we are in terms of population as a relatively small state, we believe respect and support for the multilateral system must be at the heart of how we tackle the global problems we face. It is a core value of our diplomacy. The poet John Donne wrote, No man is an island entire of itself. Every man is a piece of the continent, a part of the main. If a clod be washed away by the sea, Europe is the less. Don's words are relevant to the current challenges we face as Europeans. I believe multilateralism, a shared sense of working together to achieve our aims, must remain central to our identity and our diplomatic approach. It is vital that we work together, for example, to build a Europe that fulfills the aspirations of its citizens, which goes beyond economic prosperity and growth, but encompasses also, more fundamentally, a cohesive vision of our values as Europeans, expressed in a generous engagement with the wider world. The European Union is challenged by the need to reaffirm its relevance to the daily lives of its citizens. I welcome the debate around the future of Europe and the process of public engagement and dialogue which I hope will reconnect these citizens on the European streets with a vision of Europe, founded on concepts of what based on what we must share, such as solidarity with our neighbours and on the meeting of the basic needs the meeting of the basic needs of all of our citizens across borders. The joint report from the United European Union and the United Kingdom negotiators on progress in phase one of the Brexit negotiations, published on the 8th of December, was a very important step forward. On Irish-specific issues, the report includes the maintenance of the common travel area, protection of the Good Friday Agreement in all its parts, and the gains of the peace process, including avoiding a hard border and the protection of European Union citizenship and other rights. And these are underwritten by a firm guarantee from the United Kingdom that a hard border would be avoided and includes commitments as to how this will be achieved. So I hope that 2018 will be a helpful year and will also bring an early rest restoration of all of the institutions of the Good Friday Agreement and that the agreement in all its part is fully protected and respected in the context of the United Kingdom's withdrawal from the European Union. It is disappointing that after several phases of negotiations in different formats, it has not been possible to reach an agreement to restore the executive. I wish the new talks well. I believe that it remains possible to reach an agreed outcome which ensures implementation of previous agreements and reflects the core principles of the Good Friday Agreement and power sharing itself. Partnership, equality, mutual respect. Northern Ireland has been transformed over the past few decades, by, but the process of reconciling the two communities must continue so that the full potential of the decisions made by all the people of this island in 1998 can be fully realised. I quoted John Donne. He reminded us that no one stands alone. We are all members of a series of overlapping and intersecting communities, constantly interacting with each other, 
And that is the case for states also. Even the strongest and most successful must cooperate with others to tackle the global challenges I have mentioned, such as climate change. These challenges transcend borders. In Ireland's case, this aspiration is given tangible form in our consistent unambiguous support for multilateral institutions and through them for disarmament, non-proliferation, in the determination of our peacekeepers to not only to respond but to prevent conflict and in our development assistance programme which seeks to affirm human dignity and helps seek to help alleviate poverty and hunger. I've seen in my many visits to the diaspora, most recently, Sabine and I in our visit to Australia and New Zealand, how the work performed by Irish diplomats over many generations on decolonisation, human rights, the struggle against apartheid and disarmament and non-proliferation have forged Ireland's reputation on the world stage. That is the core of Ireland's reputation. This is a legacy of which we are rightly proud and which we are anxious to retain as a key building block in our diplomacy. I want to recall particularly, at a time of heightened global tension, the dedicated work of our defence forces deployed on peacekeeping and humanitarian operations. Over 1,400 Defence Force personnel served overseas in this last year of 2017, saving the lives of refugees in the Mediterranean, patrolling the rocky hills of South Lebanon, and indeed keeping the fragile peace on the Golan. In 2017, Ireland was also one of the sponsors of the Treaty to Prohibit Nuclear Weapons, which is intended to lead ultimately to their total elimination. This groundbreaking treaty is consistent with the leadership role Ireland has taken on disarmament and non-proliferation, such as the Ottawa Convention on Landmines and the Convention on Cluster Munitions. It is of critical importance because it sends a clear signal that the normalisation of nuclear weapons as just another instrument of war can never be acceptable, and that because of their devastating destructive power, they must ultimately be prohibited. And I am proud of the role Ireland played in the negotiation of the Sustainable Development Goals. These goals challenge all states to deal with trade, debt, environmental protection, intellectual and spiritual freedom, as well as cultural diversity, in a spirit of justice, partnership and mutual solidarity. The international community must now commit to offer the possibility through new connected models of ethics, ecology and original economic thought and practice that will transfer science and technology in a culturally responsible way and enable the implementation of the goals, achieve their full potential, and it has, of course, the capacity to transform the lives of millions, in particular in continents such as Africa. Another area which requires multilateral cooperation is the climate change, and I hope that the international community can move forward again on the implementation of the Paris Accord. Last year I said, I believe it is a truly turning point in addressing the climate crisis and is at the start of a powerful movement for change that has public support. I hope that all countries can ultimately sign up to the agreement, which does not threaten the prosperity of any state, but rather is a sign of our shared commitment to secure the future of our fragile planet for generations to come through sustainable development. These agreements are ultimately larger than any one state. However, as they affect the entire global community, 
I believe the wider international community and civil society must be mobilised in their support and to ensure their implementation. Here in our Sinukton, we try to do that by having public events which celebrate and the importance of sustainable development and responding to climate change. Bush, as the High Commissioner for Human Rights, has reminded us the multilateral system, which has been the basis of international peace and security for over 70 years, is today under unprecedented strain. And while we acknowledge the weaknesses of the United Nations that may be there and the need to make its institutions and processes maybe more representative of the wider international community, in particular the Global South, Ireland continues to support the United Nations because we believe it provides a framework of values and the mechanisms to support them that remain relevant and valid. And if we have not yet achieved them, it is not because they have lost their currency, but because our efforts have not yet matched our ambition. In 2020, Ireland will be a candidate for election to the United Nations Security Council. We will be seeking the support of your governments for our candidature. We put ourselves forward because we believe it is our responsibility as a small state to shoulder our share of the burden of global leadership on issues of international peace and security. We also believe that our values and principles, as well as our strong commitment to the United Nations, embodied in the continuous presence of Irish personnel on so many United Nations peacekeeping operations since 1958, will enable us to make a valuable, informed contribution to the work of the Council. Dear friends, the absence of peace in the Middle East reflects a fundamental failure of the international community at every level, the human and diplomatic level, and sadly in that troubled region, we sometimes hear words that provoke rather than heal. I would appeal for all parties to remain committed to reaching a peaceful negotiated solution to the Middle East peace process, something which is essential for Israel to secure its future, but for Palestinians to enjoy their full political rights. The aspirations of both parties must and can be fulfilled in a way that must be found through negotiations to resolve the status of Jerusalem, for example, as the future capital of both states, in line with relevant United Nations Security Council resolutions and international law. At this time of heightened tensions across the region, it is the responsibility of all political leaders to avoid using words which could inflame the situation and make the task of diplomats and peacemakers ever more difficult. Because of the Irish peacekeepers deployed in South Lebanon and the Golan, Ireland has a fundamental interest in ensuring that nothing is said or done which could endanger their safety and security. And I have to say I am appalled by the continuing violence in Syria and its impact on the Syrian population. I urge the international community to support the United Nations broker talks in Geneva to try to bring an end to the fighting. Ireland has contributed vital assistance to the millions of Syrians who have been displaced by this humanitarian disaster. But the conflict itself must be brought to an end. And then we must all be concerned, surely, about the situation in Yemen. The conflict there can only be resolved through a negotiated settlement based on respect for human rights and international law and improved humanitarian access to those who need it and without delay. Regional actors have a particular responsibility to do all they can to bring an end to these conflicts. 
and we all have been watching with the greatest concern the violence that has flown from the Rakhine state in Myanmar. A devastating humanitarian crisis has developed as a result of the recent violence, and over 600,000 people, most of whom are members of the Rohingya community, have fled to Bangladesh. The recommendations of the Advisory Commission on Rakhine State, so ably chaired by former United Nations Secretary General Kofi Annan, should be implemented in full, which would allow those returning to Rakhine be reintegrated, that would ensure their livelihoods, would provide urgent humanitarian relief for the significant number of refugees in Bangladesh. Finally, dear friends, in his poem Snow, the Belfast-born poet Louis McNeese reminded us of the inherently mutable and unstable context in which diplomatic work takes place. World is suddener than we fancy it. World is crazier and more of it than we think. Incorrigibly plural. Diplomats must embrace the plurality and variety of the world and use their experience and training to think about how different people engage with it through different languages, cultures, histories, belief system. That fluidity and movement makes your professional lives deeply rewarding, but it also makes great demands on your skills and resilience and those of your spouses and families, which Sabina and I are so pleased to welcome again today. And they, after all, make possible and share your diplomatic life with you. May I thank you once again for the vital role you all play and will play in building understanding between nations and peoples and doing whatever you can to foster peace and security in 2018. And may I take this opportunity to ask you to convey my own good wishes, those of, sp of the Irish people, to all of those you represent. Gwibrak Sanasariv Gilianiwan, then Vlinchester Nablinter Father Talachiat, is Berbanak Lagakra the Megashulagi, Ersun or Winteragas Winterandan, then Vlinchahagen. And now may I propose a toast to the heads of, of state here represented. Gurmila Mahaki, thank you.